30. And guys, if we can uh, make the switch here, let me uh, get on the okay, screen mirroring. You guys going to be off back there? Okay, let's see if we can come up here now. Here we go. Okay, I think we're up. This evening we'll consider uh, the subject of canonization. Last week we talked about revelation and inspiration as we uh, do this series, The Grand View of God's Word. Notice if you would Proverbs chapter 30 and verse number 5 and 6. Proverbs 30 verses 5 and 6. Every word of God is pure. He is a shield unto them that put their trust in him. And then notice verse 6. Add thou not unto his words, lest he reprove thee. And thou be found a liar. We'll emphasize a couple of times the statement of Agur in, uh, under inspiration in verse number 6. Add thou not unto his words. Uh, if you're told not to add to something, it means that there's a recognized, quantified, completed body that doesn't get added to. Okay? And uh, that is really a basis for our understanding of this subject of canonization This evening. So let's uh, begin with a word of prayer and then we'll start right in. Father, thank you for the opportunity to be together tonight. I thank you that your word is tested and tried and proven true. And that for 2,000 years now, your people have had the assurance of having a completed Bible. And I ask you, Lord, that you would help us tonight uh, to be strengthened uh, in our faith in that proposition, that reality, and that because we have a completed Bible, We can have complete confidence. We can have the hope and the desire of, as Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 3, uh, the man of God being perfect, truly furnished unto all good works. Thank you that your word is sufficient and complete. As we consider that from this perspective of what it means that we call the Bible the canon of uh, Scripture tonight, I ask you that you would help each of us uh, to grow in our faith. And I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Grand view of God's Word, the purpose and place of all 66 books of the Bible. Last Wednesday evening, we considered uh, the foundational information of Revelation, which was God's communication about Himself and His will, His self-revelation to mankind, both in general and in special revelation, special revelation in particular being the Scripture and the Lord Jesus Christ. And then as it relates to Scripture, inspiration is the means by which God guaranteed the accurate transmission of his revelation. He didn't leave it to man's ideas, man's thoughts, man's means. God, through inspiration, the word literally means God's, God breathed. Second uh, Peter chapter number 1, the Holy Spirit of God moved men. He carried men along to an intended destination. And so inspiration is the means by which God guaranteed the accurate transmission of His revelation. Tonight we consider canonization. Really, this answers how do we know, how have people in history in the last 2,000 years since the book of Revelation was written, how have God's people known which books went into the Bible and which professed books didn't go into the Bible? Okay, that is the subject here of canonization. When we speak of canonization, do we talk about that one or that one? 
In case you're, many of you, many of you know that Canon, as in the one that's in the top picture there, is C-A-N-N-O-N. Uh, so obviously that's not the one that we're speaking about. Uh, Canon literally means rule or standard by which something is determined or judged. And so that's why the illustration of a ruler is better for us. Though the word of God does have power. And all God's people said, amen. Okay. But uh, Canon literally... When we speak of canonization, here's our third topic as we lay this foundational information. The definition of the word canon means a measuring rod, a standard, or a rule, or ruler, by which something is judged or measured. The idea is this, is that God gave us a standard or a rule by which we can, as God's people, uh, for now 2,000 years, and even back into the Old Testament era, God's people, the nation of Israel, were able to determine what was a book of the Bible, what was the revelation of God, and what was not. Okay, uh, Description, uh, when we use the word canon or canonization, we're talking about a description of the rules and process by which each book of the Scripture came to be included in our Bible. And then along with that, with the finished product of the 66 books that make the single book of the Bible, we often will refer to the Bible as the canon of Scripture. Okay? So, first let's correct a misconception uh, that if you sometimes will maybe watch a docu-series on the History Channel or something like that, even if it's conservative and well-intended, which, let me encourage you, don't get your Bible knowledge from the History Channel. Uh, it reminds me of uh, the, the one that I heard about years ago where a, a, an unbelieving scholar tried explaining that it wasn't really the Red Sea that the nation of Israel crossed. It was the Reed Sea, which is about nine inches deep. And somebody humorously responded, well, then it was still a great miracle because if it was the Reed Sea with only nine inches of water, then it was a great miracle to drown Pharaoh and the Egyptian army in nine inches of water. All that to say, even in some cases, people are well-intended, but there's a, still a misconception here, and that is that we, that churches and Christians didn't know what the canon of Scripture was until about the 4th century A.D. And they will appeal to or talk about church councils, the Council of Laodicea in 336 A.D. So notice we're talking 236 years after the book of Revelation was written. Uh, included all the books in their canon at that council, their determination, this church council, uh, their determination of what the canon was, all books but the Revelation. And then many of you have maybe heard the name of Athanasius. Athanasius is what some have called an early church father. He lived from 296 to 373 A.D. He recognized all 27 New Testament books as canonical in 367 A.D. He was a, a part of the Council of Nicaea, uh, which was known for defending the deity of Christ. His antagonist was a man by the name of Arian. Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons are Arian. They do not believe in the full deity of Jesus Christ. Athanasius notably defended the full deity of Jesus Christ, but in case you're wondering, Athanasius had some other heresies as well. So are we dependent upon Athanasius to determine whether or not we were 300 and some years, 367 years into Christian history from the time of the Apostle John before we knew if we had a whole Bible or not, or a whole New Testament. Were we dependent upon the Council of Laodicea? And I'm speaking very broadly, all of us as God's people. The Council of Carthage, notice that. Finally got it right. 
397 A.D., full four centuries, or really three centuries, if you don't count the first century, a full three centuries into Christian history after the apostles had passed off the scene, are we dependent upon church councils and and individuals to determine whether or not we have had the canon of Scripture? Are we? No, we're not. Uh, And there are reasons for that. Uh, One of the reasons they had to have these councils, let me just throw this out here. One of the reasons, if you study Christian history, that they had to have these councils in order to hammer out doctrine is because the the, uh, seminal version of the Roman Catholic Church was already in development. And a lot of heresies and irregularities were already entering into the churches and being accepted. By the way, you you see Paul and Peter even warning about that in the first century, too. But there's a misconception that some people have. We didn't know if we had the whole Bible until these councils settled the question for us. There's a really good Italian word for that. Baloney. Okay? Now, let me... Uh, we're, so I raised the question in the, in, the, uh, in the notes here. Were New Testament churches dependent on councils or individuals? The answer is unequivocally no. They were not. Were we three centuries, and I'm saying we in the sense of God's people collectively, were we three centuries without uh, confidence that we had the complete Bible? Or, here's the counterpoint, does the Scripture testify that both Old Testament and New Testament believers would have a rule, a canon, if you would, by which the books of the Bible were determined? By which God's people, at whatever particular time and they were, even in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, they knew, okay, that is a book that is a biblical book. That one is an accepted book. That one is not. By the way, it was as early as the second century B.C., okay, 200 years before Christ came, that there were already apocryphal books, okay, hidden, if you would, hidden books, books that were set aside by those who understood what Bible books were, and books that were being written that were proposing to be Bible books even before the first century A.D., and then as late as the fourth century A.D., there were false or what some have called pseudepigraphal lying books, okay, posing to be books of the Bible that were not. So a period of about 600 years where there were false books, both the Old Testament and New Testament setting, that were being set forth. And so it was important for God's people, long before these church councils could ever answer the question, did God's people have criteria or rules or canons by which they could determine what was a biblical book and not? Let's look at some scripture. Um, let me just, we're already at Proverbs chapter 3. I want you to, if you would, write down the references of Deuteronomy 13 and Deuteronomy 18. We're not going to take the time to turn to those, but I would encourage you to go read those, and here's why. Deuteronomy chapter 18 and Deuteronomy 13 both give tests of the prophets. And in the Old Testament, if a man professed to be a prophet and professed to speak for God, there were certain criteria by which the nation of Israel could hold him up, a standard by which they could judge him. And what's interesting, the Deuteronomy 13 passage says that even if a man shows signs and wonders, and yet even if he shows miracles, 
but says something and he professes to speak for God, even if he authenticates it with a miracle, but it's inconsistent with the rest of what God has said, he is still to be judged as a false prophet. Okay. Even if he sought to authenticate or verify his words with a miracle. Now, we mentioned Proverbs 30, verses 5 and 6. Add thou not, verse number 6, unto his words, lest he reprove thee. Though the Old Testament was not complete when Proverbs was being written, Solomon and Agur, okay, uh, chapter 30 is attributed to a man named Agur that Solomon would have included his words because he understood they were inspired by God. He would have included them in the book of Proverbs, okay, but notice what he says, even at a point where the Bible as we know it wasn't complete but was in the process of being given, there were criteria that God's people could understand to make sure that a book was true or what a man said was true. So that with confidence, God could say, add thou not, add your under inspiration, say, add thou not, as if we understood. And the point is this is there is a completed, to that point, a completion of God's word where God's people can know, oh, what that guy's trying to say is God's word doesn't fit. We're not adding that to what God has said. Okay. Notice, if you would, Romans chapter 2. The Apostle Paul is addressing uh, the Jews, and remember the first part of the book of Romans, Jew or Gentile, he's concluding them all under sin, but what he's doing in the early part of chapter Two of the book of or in, in Romans chapter number two is he's addressing the Jewish people in particular, and he is pointing out that because of what they've been given as the people of God, they have a greater accountability to God than pagan Gentiles do. And then he lists in Proverbs chapter or in Romans chapter two, and he'll give some more things in, in Romans chapter number nine. We'll see this in just a moment. He gives this catalog of all that they have. And notice some of the things that he says. He says to the Jews, to them, that he said, You know his will, verse 18, and approvest the things that are more excellent, being instructed out of the law. They've been given God's law, and therefore it gave them discernment, gave them also greater accountability. Verse number 19, And art confident that thou thyself art a guide of the blind. By the way, there's legitimacy to what Paul is saying here. The nation of Israel was appointed by God to be a guide to the nations around, and they failed in that. And a light of them which are in darkness, the nation of Israel, was to be a light to the Gentiles, the book of Isaiah would say. Verse number 20, an instructor, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of babes. And then to the nation of Israel, or to the Jews, Paul says this to them, which hast, you have the form of the knowledge and of the truth in the law. The word form means an outline. We're going to come back to this at the conclusion of our time, but it literally means an outline, a proper or a correct outline of God's plan. The Jews had that in the Old Testament, a form, a proper outline. If you would like the border on a puzzle or like uh, the outline of a picture in a coloring book, it hadn't been filled in and it hadn't been colored in, but the correct outline or form was there. The nation of Israel had that in the Old Testament. So there was a Bible testimony, Old Testament canon. These folks had tests to determine 
what God's word was, what books of the Bible went in the canon. They were commanded not to add to it because they had an understanding of what was and what wasn't the word of God. And then Paul would even testify they had a proper outline. It still needed to be filled in with the New Testament in order to bring it to full completion. But they had the form, if you would. Now, we continue with Romans chapter 3 and verse number 1. What advantage then hath the Jew? Or what profit is there of circumcision? Much every way. Chiefly because unto them were committed the oracles of God. The word oracles translates a word that's very familiar to the Greek word logos. He's saying this. You all had committed to you the words of God. Not word generically or generally, but the very words of God. Romans chapter number 9, verse number 1. I say the truth in Christ. I lie not. Paul said, my conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Ghost that I have great heaviness and continual sorrow in my heart, for I could wish that myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh, talking about the nation of Israel, who are the Israelites. Now notice this, to whom pertaineth the adoption, the glory, and the covenants, and the giving of the law, and the service of God, and the promises, whose are the fathers, and of whom is concerning the flesh Christ came, who is over all God blessed forever. Amen. What Paul did in that list that he just gave, beginning with verse number 4, who are the Israelites, to whom pertaineth the adoption? He's talking about the nation of Israel, small as it was, being made the people of God. Okay. And then the glory, all of the interaction that the nation of Israel had with the Shekinah glory of God whether it's in the book of Ezekiel or before that, the pillar of fire by day, the pillar of cloud by night, or the appearance of the glory of God Shekinah to Moses on the mount, all of those different manifestations. And then when the tabernacle was built and the temple completed and the glory of God coming down so that the priests and the people could not even stand to minister. And then the covenants whether it's the Noahic covenant that God would never destroy the earth, there's a series of five to six covenants, depending on how you count. Some even say seven, some more. But the Noahic covenant, God made a promise to the world that he would never again destroy it with a flood of water. And then the Abrahamic covenant that would be the foundation of the nation of Israel. Out of that would come the Davidic covenant that Abraham would have a descendant who would rule forever. The Palestinian covenant, a promise that relates to the land, the actual land where the people of Israel are now. And may I say, regardless of what Muslims want, forever will be there. And then the covenant, uh, the new covenant that is Christ and his shed blood for us. And you and I, even as Gentiles, are brought into some experiences of that. And then the giving of the law, we call the Old Testament the law, in particular the Pentateuch, the service of God, that is the Levitical priesthood, the whole book of Leviticus, the promises. I believe that the promises here is a reference to the prophets of the Old Testament. If you take that list and you flush it out, essentially you see that Paul just described all of the Old Testament. As it is written down in all of these different aspects of the Old Testament experience and how God worked in time and in history. And he says to the Jews, to the people of Israel, this has all been given to them. And they didn't wonder if they had it or not. Paul was able to say to them, listen, this is what you've been given. You know it's been given to you and because of that you're more accountable. And they had an understanding that what they had were the words of God. Okay. Now, 
the Bible testimony in the New Testament canon. And I'm having to hasten here. John chapter 16 and verse number 12. This is the uh, upper room discourse. And Jesus says to his disciples, I have yet many things to say unto you, but ye cannot bear them now. Howbeit when he, the spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth. How much truth? All truth. In other words, the spirit of God is going to do the guiding into a completed body of all truth where there will be an understanding from the apostles based on what Jesus is saying about the ministry of the Spirit of God, there would be an understanding in the apostles we have all of God's truth Okay, that is written down. All right? And the Spirit of God is going to guide you into that all truth. For he shall not speak of himself, but whatsoever he shall hear, that shall he speak, and he will show you things to come. It's talking about end-time events, one of the greatest textbooks on eschatology, the study of end-time events. I think I mentioned this last week. is called Things to Come, taking the very words of the Lord Jesus Christ. So the Spirit of God will guide the apostles into all truth and understanding of in its completed form. Notice 1 Timothy 3.15, But if I tarry long, Paul telling this to Timothy, that thou mayest know how thou oughtest to behave thyself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God. And then he says of the church of the living God, it is what? The pillar and the ground of the truth. A pillar, that massive pillar that holds up whole floors above it. Okay, it sustains it. It supports it. And then the word ground here speaks of the foundation under the pillar. You can have a pillar, but if it's not set on a solid foundation, the weight of the building above will press that pillar into the ground. So if you're going to have a proper uh, and, and substantial support, you've got to have a foundation, which is the ground here, and the pillar that sustains the truth. It is the job of the church. God made it this way. It is the job of the church to hold up. The truth of God. Okay. And God has, through the Spirit of God, gifted the church for the last 2,000 years to understand what is a part of God's Word and what isn't. Notice, if you would, Jude chapter 3, beloved. And remember, the book of Jude, written towards the end of the New Testament, just before the book of Revelation. Jude, a half-brother of the Lord Jesus Christ. Beloved, when I gave all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation, it was needful for me to write unto you and exhort ye that ye should, exhort ye that ye should earnestly contend for the faith which was, what? Once delivered unto the saints. Not ongoing delivered, okay? But he's talking about a culmination, a completion. And by the way, you see this as well. We are to earnestly contend for the faith. There's a definite article both in the English and in the original Greek that demonstrates when you see the faith used in Scripture, it is God's way of referring to the completed body of New Testament doctrine. Don't add to it. Don't take away from it. We'll see that warning in the last book of the New Testament, uh, Revelation, here in just a moment. So notice this. As we put these three passages together, the Holy Spirit of God works through the apostles who are the foundation of the church and thereby works through the church to demonstrate what the completed truth of God is, all the truth of God is, so that we as saints can earnestly contend for the faith that was once delivered. 
We can say it this way. When John, under inspiration, lifted his quill from the last verse of Revelation, the canon was finished. Okay, it was completed. And the Bible says that the Spirit of God is going to super, would supernaturally work through the apostles, through that process, to bring them to an understanding of when it was completed. Okay? And, of course, working through the institution of the church. Uh, warnings against adding to. We've already looked at Proverbs chapter 30. Notice if you would. Now, 2 Peter chapter 3, verse number 15. 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse number 15. Uh, I know, again, the font is small. This will be on the live stream if you want to go back and watch the video of this to see more closely these verses. I love the way Peter closes 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse number 15. He says, "...an account, or consider it to be so, that this long-suffering of our Lord is salvation, even as our beloved brother Paul, also according to the wisdom given unto him, hath written unto you, also in all his epistles, or as also in all his epistles, speaking in them... Of these things, uh, of these things, in which are some things hard to be understood, which they that are unlearned and unstable rest, as they do also the other scriptures under their own destruction. Now, there's a lot that takes place in just those uh, two verses. One of the things is this: is that Peter testifies that all of Paul's epistles are in the category of what scripture. Okay, I also am humored by the fact that Peter says there's some stuff Paul wrote that's hard to be understood. And how many of you would say amen to that too? Okay, I love that the fisherman says about the educated scholar, he writes some stuff. But here is what is interesting. He has enough of an understanding of the canon of Scripture, what Scripture is and what Scripture isn't. Even if he can't understand it, he knows when somebody is ripping it out of context. Okay, Peter understands that. He said, there are those that are ignorant and unlearned uh, and unstable that they twist or rest the scripture. They do it with all the others. You know what this tells me too? It's not just an attack on Paul. It is a work of the devil to undermine the whole of scripture. Okay. But uh, here's a warning. And Peter, though he says, listen, Paul writes some stuff that's hard to be understood. By the way, Peter writes some stuff that's hard to be understood too. But aren't you glad for the indwelling Spirit of God that illuminates our minds to that and helps us as we continue to work and study? Uh, study to show thyself approved. It's the Greek word spudazo, which means be diligent. Okay? Uh, now, Revelation 22 and verse number 18. I need to move along and we get to a conclusion here. Revelation 22 and verse number 18. The Apostle John writing at the end, the very last chapter of the Bible, and encompassing really all of it, Okay, for I testify unto every man that heareth the words of the prophecy of this book. Why, Why, by the way, would we say that it's not just revelation, but all of the book that the scripture, that this verse is speaking about? I'll tell you what, why I believe that this is not just talking about revelation, because revelation, as you look at the whole of Old Testament prophecy and New Testament prophecy, revelation is the culmination of all of that. Okay, so it's not just a single book. We can apply this to the entire book. For I testify to every man that heareth the words of the prophecy of this book, if any man shall add unto these things, God shall add unto him the plagues that are written in this book. 
And if any man shall take away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part out of the book of life and out of the holy city from and from the things which are written in this book. I'm not, for the sake of time, I'm not going to go into what I believe John is talking about when he says God's going to take away his part out of the book of life, okay? We can maybe talk about that at a different time, so I'm going to bypass that one. But this is true. You don't want to mess with the Bible, okay? You don't. Take the warning. Uh, for, and I don't think anybody in here is interested in doing that, by the way. Anybody listening on the live stream. Uh, all right. Let me move along here. Conclusions on the canon. According to the Bible. So these are some conclusions based on the scripture we've just considered. According to the Bible, Old Testament Israel and the New Testament apostolic local, ch- local churches recognize the canonical books, the canonical books and the completed canon by Holy Spirit guidance. They did not need a church council in the 300s to tell them what their Bible was. Okay, The Holy Spirit of God affirmed that for them. And notice this, councils merely affirmed what local churches had already accepted and were using. Fourth or thirdly, the canon then was not an approved list of books, but rather the list of already accepted books. If we could say it this way, the councils were catching up to what New Testament churches had already determined under the leadership of the Holy Spirit of God. They finally agreed on what local churches had long before concluded in 100 A.D. Now, here's a summary criteria or tests of canonicity that we can draw from the Scripture as we've looked at the different passages, both Old Testament and New Testament. One of the greatest testimonies that is often overlooked to the inspiration of Scripture or what is an inspired book of the Bible as opposed to what isn't is the simplicity and the transparency of the Bible. The very fact that God used fallible men to write unsavory accounts about themselves in full transparency and honesty is a testimony. Because, listen, when man writes about himself, he really tends to gloss the picture. I can imagine Peter, as he was, I believe, Mark, got Mark in the Gospel of Mark, Mark's source, and he's having to talk about his denial, and he's having to talk about his sticking his foot in his mouth, and the Spirit of God's moving Peter, and I can just imagine Peter feeling lower and lower and lower, and yet understanding this is what God wants put down. Amen. Okay. So simplicity and transparency... It was one of the criteria, or the canons, if you would, by which the churches, under the direction of the Spirit of God, as opposed to the fanciful nature of some of the... And it's funny, the, over history, the books of the Apocrypha have... Uh, the Pseudepigrapha, those books that have claimed, whether Old Testament or New Testament, period, to be books of the Bible, um, there's been all kinds of fanciful garbage in them that God's people have looked at and said, no, 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 that doesn't measure up to God's standard when it comes to simplicity and transparency. A second criteria is, uh, 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 I always have trouble with this word, apostolicity. Apostolicity. That is a connection in one way or another to one of the named apostles of the New Testament. Okay. Now, were there human penmen of the New Testament in particular, were there human penmen who were not apostles? Yes. Okay, let's take Luke, for instance. Okay. Luke, 
was a doctor. He was a part of Paul's missions team, but he was not an apostle. But did he have a connection to an apostle? He did. A very close connection to the apostle Paul. Okay? And so as we look at the, the history of the book of Acts, as we look at the book of Luke as well, the gospel of Luke, we know that he had connection. Another one I just mentioned is Mark. John Mark was not an apostle. And yet John Mark was closely associated with the apostles, and it's believed that his source was Peter. So he had that connection to Peter. Matthew was an apostle. John was an apostle. And so uh, apostolicity, right? Some connection, clear connection to one of the apostles. And then a third criteria was the universal reception of the churches. The universal reception of the churches. Wherever that book of the New Testament made it in that first hundred years, and it found reception, uh, a universal reception of the New Testament churches, that was another demonstration of apostolicity. Why would we say that? Because the Spirit of God is working in all of those churches to bring about a fourth criteria, and that is consentient, that is consent or harmony, a harmonious message, all of the books together speaking the same thing Amen. in full agreement. Okay, No contradiction. As you look at some of the uh, messages and some of the things that the apocryphal books, uh, the, the longest list I've been aware of is about 18 different apocryphal books. As you look at them, you'll find that many times there was not an agreement with the general message of the Scripture. And then fifthly, the ring of inspiration. The ring of inspiration, that this is clearly the voice of God. This is not something that man made up. So a summary criteria or the tests of canonicity. Here are several helpful summaries, and then we'll bring this to a conclusion and pray for a little bit. Cyril Barber is a commentator. I've appreciated uh, things that he's written before. I have several of his commentaries in my library. He said this, It seems preferable on biblical grounds to conclude that the pious in Israel, the godly people of Israel, recognized instinctively that God had spoken on either hearing or reading his word. Scripture, therefore, was immediately accepted as normative by those who were God-fearing. It was not necessary for them to wait for some council to pass its approval before the books of the Old Testament could be regarded as authoritative. And then a man by the name of Merrill Unger was responsible for the Unger's Bible Dictionary and several other valuable resources of the last 100 or so years. He said this, Official sanction by these councils, understood, did not create public opinion. It merely confirmed it. That's a great simple statement. These church councils that met in those first three to 400 years, they didn't create public opinion. They merely confirmed what the churches were already holding to and confident in. And then B.B. Warfield, a, one of the Princetonian professors when it was conservative a long time ago, wrote a book entitled The Inspiration and the Authority of Scripture, considered a classic work on that doctrine. B.B. Warfield said this, The early Christians did not then first form a rival canon of new books which came only gradually to be accounted or considered as of equal divinity and authority with the old books. They received new book after new book from the apostolical circle. 
Okay, there's that apostolicity they received as a new letter of Paul would be written. The churches would understand, hey, this fits, this gets included because it meets the criteria. Okay, and then they would add them one by one to the collection of the old books, talking about the Old Testament as additional scripture until at length the new books thus added were numerous enough to be looked upon as another section of scripture. Um, final consideration here, and this struck me this afternoon, this is what I love about going back over these things, is I gather things and learn things, a new layer that I had never seen before. Uh, Romans 2.18, we've already talked about this, but notice verse number 20. Paul said to the nation of Israel, you're an instructor of the foolish because of the Old Testament scripture that you have. You're an instructor of the foolish, you're a teacher of babes, and you have the form of knowledge, the outline. Okay, correct outline, a proper outline of God's plan, okay, and of the truth and the law. And then when you put that together with 1 Timothy 3.15, that the local church is the pillar and the ground of the truth, here is, here's the, the way that I am envisioning this in my mind. The Old Testament, based on what Paul says, was the form of the outline. It was the page in a coloring book that hadn't been colored in yet. The picture, the outline was there. That was the Old Testament. The New Testament was the coloring in of the picture. Okay, Or we could use the illustration of a puzzle. The Old Testament was the border. When you put a puzzle together, you start with what? The border, those straight edges. You put them all together. That gives you the outline. And then the New Testament would have been the filling in once the border was finished. Okay, Paul says to the Jews, with the Old Testament, you had the form. But then it will be completed... With the New Testament, the Spirit of God is going to guide through the apostles, his people, into all truth, completed truth. The Old Testament and the New Testament together. What does this do? This not only upholds the importance of the Old Testament, but it also shows us the beauty of the New Testament as well. That the two are two different sections, if you would, of a single book. Now... The apostles would have understood that. The Spirit of God would have guided them in that process until revelation was completed. Uh, we've said it this way before. Many of you have heard this. The Old Testament is the New Testament, what? Concealed. And the New Testament is the Old Testament revealed. Okay. Now, uh, I've got a picture here. Uh, but before we go to the picture, two pictures, and we close, uh, let me, let me uh, say this. In the 66 books of the single book that you hold in your hand, you have a book that has been proven to be complete and true for 2,000 years now. Okay. Proven. We don't have to wonder. We're not waiting on some new book to come along or some new manuscript to be dug up in some dry basement in a monastery at the foot of Mount Sinai or the Vatican. Okay. We're not waiting on any of that. We didn't need that. We didn't need that. Okay, I'll say it one more time for my sake. We didn't need that, okay? The Bible, when John finished, God's people and the church is new, it's done. It's done. Because the Spirit of God working as he did, okay? Now, it's proven true. Let me show you this picture here. If you're getting ready to go into a battle... And you're given one of two options. Which are you going to pick? Now, just answer to yourself. Which, which would you pick if you're about to go into a battle? Okay. 
Now, let's be specific. Which did David pick? Why did David pick the sling instead of the soldier's armor? Remember, Saul offered David his armor. And David said, no, why not? Because it isn't proven. I've not proved it. Give me the sling. By the way, he took care of Goliath at enough of a distance with his sling. He didn't need the armor. And he borrowed Goliath's sword to finish the job, so he didn't need a sword either because he knew he was going to get Goliath from him in his little bit. Okay. But why did David pick the sling? Because it was proven. Let me tell you something. In the grand scheme of the world's perspective, the world may look at a book like this 2,000 years old and say it's not much, but let me just tell you, it's proven. Okay, 2,000 years proven. Father, thank you. for this truth, this study of canonization. And Lord, I'm asking that you would use things we've considered this evening and maybe even the opportunity to go back and review uh, to help us, Lord, in our own holding forth the word of life, just as Paul said to the Philippians, to be all the more confident because we have a proven book that for 2,000 years has been understood to be complete And I praise you for that. Thank you that the Spirit of God has guided us not into partial truth, but to all truth. And that we have it. In Jesus' name, amen.